everyone, welcome back to the left page. I am Frank, your always online historian, academic, and writer. I am joined, as always, by my great friend and co-host, social scientist Leon. Hello, Leon. Hello, Frank. And we got some other people, some people that... Shout out, shout out to everyone who's dealing with the horrors of it all. <laughs> Welcome back to the left page, uh, Horror Vanguard. <laughs> Hello, well, everyone. Welcome. Yeah, hi. How, how how are we doing? It's always 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 a pleasure to be here. You know, it's it's a tough it's a tough role that we take on dealing with dealing with the horror of it all. But you know, it's what it's what me and Ash are here for. Yes, it's like. going to be great. I'm I'm really excited. And uh, we got uh, because it's Spooky Month, right, Frank? Of we, course, uh, it's it's not a, it's not a proper Spooky Month passage if I don't drag the ghosts from their crypt to to the <laughs> library. So, <laughs> yeah, no. And what's spookier than filling out a form? Very little. <laughs> yeah, very no, little. I can quite literally not think of anything more horrifying than Kafka the Trial. Mm-hmm. Not just any work of Kafka, not some bug I turn into a bug and lie on the floor. Relatable Kafka, no, some, <laughs> some like no, I I actually have to deal with the horrors of it all, with forms. So many forms, so many meetings, so many. Yeah. How bureaucracy. how do I get entry to the law? And how, <laughs> did we do we have any hot takes on how do we get entry to the law? Is that something? <laughs> you have to buy all of my terrible paintings. Oh, okay. yeah, no, yeah. that that is true. I do need more fucking paintings in my, <laughs> in my life. That is right. God, I love that. Okay, <clears throat> not getting ahead of myself. Um, so once again, uh, I I think Kafka is one of those, you know, uh, writers where uh, that you can't really approach lightly. And I don't don't mean it as a criticism. I think that's a part that I love about Kafka. So to continue this tradition of Ashley not having a fucking praise for us. Again. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. No, um, I, I, I took it upon myself to, uh, to, to, to write a little something. It, I, I hope it's, it's whatever, but um, it's a... Uh, well, you know, you will see. You know what? Fuck it. I'll just read it. Uh, fuck the intro. Um, there we go. <clears throat> I was recently asked why I maintain that I'm afraid to talk about Kafka. As usual, I was unable to think of any answer to their question, partly for the very reason that I'm afraid of Kafka, and partly because an explanation of the grounds for this fear would mean going into far more details than I could ever approximately keep in my mind while talking. Kafka is one of those writers where every interesting interesting thing you might have to say has probably already been said by a literary critic twice as well-spoken as you and thrice as well-read as you. So in order to generate any amount of meaningfulness, I would like to focus on my personal relationship with Kafka. After all, what could I ever have in common with an anxious neurotic Jewish writer that isn't loved by his father? Surely not me, right? Except for the fact, is he? Not the Jewish part, but the neurotic elements. People in their eagerness, in their depraved hunger for literary memes, depict Kafka as an excessively neurotic, anxious person. And although this depiction is somewhat sympathetic, I do think it's echoing a potentially unfair characterization of the man, 
I would argue that Kafka is precisely the right amount of neurotic and anxiousness, given his circumstances. He did, of course, something way more egregious, that which is punishable by being labeled as unwell. He was, after all, a man that happened to be emotional. I think why I'm afraid to talk about Kafka, and the trial in particular, is because having to read the trial with any kind of sincerity forces one to reconcile the self in the present continuously. I guess this is also why I'm afraid of Kafka, and why I'm annoyed by the short-sightedness of this characterization of him. For this is not just generally general anxiety that looms large over the works of Kafka. Much rather to me, it is not just about not knowing what comes next, it's exactly being able to see the future with crystal clarity and not being able to find yourself anywhere in it. That's, uh, that's my little thing. There you go. I love uh, it. And, and welcome to the horror vanguard. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that was for, so when I, when I read Aprecia, I tried to include like, like a spice, right? It's got to have that hit, you know, and that absolutely had it. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. I'm, I'm clapping right now, but I don't want to actually clap because that would mess up the audio file. <laughs> Enjoy apparitional clapping. Thank you. The best kind of clapping, the metaphorical, metacontextual idea of it. Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, no, that's once again, I, it's, it's, a, it's someone who I've been reading for like such a long time and he compliments my growing understanding of literature so well because I find something else in there every mm. single time. And there's very little authors that can do that, I would argue. So, yeah, I don't know what anyone else wants to like talk about their little relationship with Kafka. Yeah, I, I really find that approach refreshing because I think like maybe like a lot of the people listening to this show, my I, I was introduced to Kafka in a terrible undergraduate course. And Kafka kind of, for me, became the flag bearer of pedantic undergrad literature lectures. <laughs> Ooh. Um, it, which is nothing that is not a comment about Kafka's writing, uh, his life, the style, any of that. That is a comment on academia solely. Um, but I'm, I've really enjoyed like, you know, like revisiting the trial and metamorphosis and a few things um, in preparation for this episode and kind of like taking a fresh glance at Kafka's work. So I, I, I think there's a couple of ways into this, which is like, firstly, we can talk about I can talk about Kafka as this sort of like Kafka received in in English anyway is is sort of presented as this writer of almost sort of universal fables. Um, when in fact I think he, it, Kafka has much more in common with stylistically anyway has much more in common with someone like Goethe um, and fits within this kind of tradition of European literature. Mm-hmm. However, however, I think in dealing with um, the kind of horrors of nameless bureaucracy of systems so ossified and and barely functional fu- functioning a law that's kind of sclerotic and and difficult to even begin to understand your own position uh, within kafka is maybe the greatest phenomenologist of what it's like to be british um <laughs> <laughs> like, like, okay. uh, like an ancient bureaucracy that's completely opaque, uh, a system that barely seems to work anymore. If you read, if you read that in contemporary Britain, you're sort of like, oh yeah, this is just like trying to deal with my local council. <laughs> like that's what this is. <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh my god, that's right. I, I did talk a little bit earlier about like you know the meme of Kafka, but I the only meme that I really like about Kafka is the one about like. Uh, George Orwell saying, 
I don't like the government and Kafka going, I don't like the government and I had to fill out a form. Like yeah. that's the only thing that is. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, but it is precisely this very, sorry to be pretentious, but it's precisely this very simple act of like the material act of filling out a form that gives Kafka this very, ironically, it's very more human dimension. So, well, okay. So to once again, pick up what oh, I was dear. trying to say, I think exactly these little things about like, <laughs> this dude broke in and it's like it's not some robust denunciation of Stalinism because of course it isn't because he was born before all that but like once again to I'm so sorry to compare it constantly to uh, Orwell or whatever but it's precisely the fact that this guy like arrested me and ate my breakfast <laughs> is what make Kafka so much better than once again like an Orwell or whatever what have you mm-hmm. like exactly this little element of well I guess you can call it dystopianism or dystopic uh, elements. Precisely this little detail, I would argue, is what like makes Kafka accessible on multiple uh, uh, fronts. Yeah, they're 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 incredibly simple, uh, at least at, at surface level, but they're so <laughs> complex. It's like they literally they take your breakfast. They're trying to uh, take away your your linens and your clothes. And it's like no, it's it's common. It's it's what you do. And it's like it's such a. It's not like oh the horrors, the terrible horrors. Yeah, they're there too, but it's it's more discreet horrors. I think so. For me personally, there's a couple of things that are worth bringing out of this, which is like firstly, Kafka's uh, lifelong interest in the aphorism uh, mm-hmm. as a as a literary mm-hmm. form. So aphorisms are basically exercises in the condensing of thought, right? That's that's why they're so interesting. And there's a very strong tradition of aphorism writing in kind of European, particularly German writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously Kafka's great kind of successor in aphorism writing is Walter Benjamin. And there, that's that's why the, this is so interesting. And I think that use of condensing down the kind of experience of the world into the kind of needle point sharpness of a single sentence is something that Kafka's very good at. And, like, no writer, like, Kafka's in that club of writers who tends to be psychologized through their writing. So, mm-hmm. like, like we think of, like, access to Kafka's, the trial is access to Kafka. Um, and what's interesting is that in Kafka's diaries, he's often very hugely self-critical um, and thinks of himself as this kind of awful person who's, who's kind of ugly and charmless. When, in fact, most of the people who knew him reported him being, yeah. like, like, eminently kind of kind and really charming a great conversationalist um, was incredibly good at his job uh, for a very long time. Uh, and there's this kind of push and pull in his diaries and letters and in his writing between the individual and the, and the solitude that's necessary for the individual to kind of come to self-knowledge and the drive towards like the wider societies in which the individual finds meaning. And so that ambiguity of like, like that that repulsion and attraction is is the classic dynamic of any good horror story right but this yeah. is like this is like existential horror <laughs> yeah exactly i it's an odd novel even to to take into point because like it was there are points of it which were ended up unfinished in terms of like the, the, the form a brief foray into the formalism zone kafka wrote <laughs> these chapters separately and some plenty of them remained unfinished some some which are included in like the uh, the published versions by Max Pod, they 
one of them at least is clearly incomplete and there are others which uh, are usually depending on your edition added on after the end but which weren't included and it's an episodic kind of novel it's strange when you read it like that but uh you there are different proposals for rearranging the chapters and such but it never it, every single chapter it still feels horrifying it feels it, it feels really scary to to be in and and to be following Joseph K and uh, all at once this this collective like the the whole of the book or whatever the book might or might not be it's still just as impactful in terms of like Kafka and the trial in particular uh, generally leave me quite like dumbfounded it's like what the fuck uh when i read uh, i read the trial first and then i read uh the metamorphosis and the metamorphosis that made me feel physically sick and the trial gave, made me go like because i read it on, on my early undergrad years and i was like what the fuck did i just read what the, <laughs> what um and i reread it for the episode and i it captured that feeling again in it's like i knew it was happening i knew it was going to happen and what was going on and i was shaking in my chair <laughs> in something that can be so mundane into a painter trying to sell you landscape portraits, which are all the same. <laughs> it's still just as daunting. Old roughly gloomy, which you would like that. You, uh, as is, as is uh, Joseph K. was uh, told as such. No, but I, um, once again, to what you both guys are, uh, what you guys are both saying, I think it's very interesting. To excuse myself from, once again, Earlier on, I said, like, oh, I kind of dislike this reading into Kafka from a psychological level. Not not genuinely, once again, not genuinely, but this way we have kind of, like, this addiction that the general audience seems to have to oversimplification, to, like... I know it sounds pedantic, but I think by doing this, there's nothing wrong with wanting things to be simple. But we, at the same time, then have to accept that certain things are just not simple. And one of those things, obviously, in my humble opinion, is Kafka. And so I, whenever someone has like, well, I have a psychological reading of Kafka, I'm like, I'm gone. I'm, I'm goodbye. I <laughs> like no offense, but <laughs> but then to to you know throw myself under the bus, a thing that I do think gives us some access into uh, why Kafka like writes these novels, why Kafka did uh, what he did, and is known as he is known, is I I think in my humble opinion at least found in the letters to his father. I don't know if you guys are like have heard about these, but uh, the first two lines of the praises was exactly from that from that from those letters, from the first letter to his father, which his father probably never read as well, which I which I find uh, more relatable than I would like. But other than that, it's it, it is but in psychology it's described as a phenomenon after if something traumatic happens we always look for our attachment figures. And uh, uh, Franz Kafka, sadly, by probably his bad relationship with his father, had trouble forming these attachment figures because your parent is probably the first attachment figure that you ever get in life. And by that being denied to him up to a certain point, once again, we can only speculate into how that relationship actually was because you only have Kafka's point of view. But still, I would argue that like, that is where a lot of things went wrong for Kafka. And I would like to argue that because that's relatable to me. <laughs> it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not approaching it from like a proper academic perspective or what have you, but I do see a lot of these, um, 
elements in uh, his relationship with his father, mainly because it's like, I have poured my heart out to a father that was not caring for it. And <laughs> and my <laughs> and his robust response was, no, that didn't happen. Uh, it's like, no. I, and I was like, well, here are these text messages. And, you know, you did that. And it's like, well, whatever. So it's it's this very bizarre situation that your parent doesn't even care enough about you to gaslight you properly. <laughs> it is not even like... <laughs> You know, it's not even like the effort of like, you know, some proper good manipulation about like, you know, others don't care about you, only me, me, your father, that's important. But, you know, I didn't even get that. It's just like, yeah, okay, well, then we don't have a relationship. Okay, that's fine. But anyway, to bring it all back, I, I do think there is something there in that very specific scenario about the father and the son and so forth and so on. Yeah, and I think like your earlier comment, uh, like contrasting Kafka's work with Orwell is I think it's really prescient especially in this fatherless context, because there is this kind of <laughs> anchorless anxiety that emerges in the trial, right? Like Joseph yeah. is is always looking for the kind of solid footing that would be given by like this social patriarchy, right? He wants a lawyer, he wants a judge, he wants a cop to tell him what's going to happen next. And then in, in, you know, like I love homage to Catalonia, like Orwell can write oh. when he wants to, but I've always found 1984 to be really paternalistic. Oh, like yeah. it, it, re it reads like your dad is scolding you about what's going to happen <laughs> if you don't straighten up and start getting good grades or whatever. Yes, yeah. yes. And then like Kafka, on the other hand, is like, you know, like he's, he's telling you something and you're not going to realize just how messed up it is until it's you know, like three days later and you're on the bus on your way home from work or something. Definitely. I, the thing that I find so interesting is also... I think the trial is the, the one of the more interesting examples of like countering this idea that a lot of people have about Kafka, because at times, especially if if uh, you read the original in, in German or like uh, some of the German passages, it's kind of funny. Um, mm -hmm. but, but once again, people are like, "Oh, it's it's worse. It's it's anxiety. It's dread." It's like, yes, and it's also at the same time thing that we are big fans of uh, on here and we will revisit soon when we talk with ash about batman 66 but it, you can <laughs> be both like you know there's there's value in the, in the silliness and this doesn't like uh like degrade the work like uh like i think uh warhammer 40k is like a ex perfect example of this like it's very <laughs> silly yeah. but it's also the fucking worst and like these two things can coexist more than people are willing to give credit for and I think Kafka, in a weird uh, way, is like preeminent of, of one of those uh, of those of that dynamic. Definitely, I, and I think that's. I don't think there's a more obvious place for that than in, well, Joseph K.'s terrible decision making process. <laughs> <laughs> Man makes the worst decision at, at any given time. I mean, he, okay, I've got a lawyer. Let's talk to the lawyer. Apparently, this is influential person. But uh, let me just hook up with the maid for a, a, a hot minute because uh, priorities. Yeah, if, there's, if there is any, any chance of uh, being in the vicinity of a woman, all, all decisions that are going to be made are going to be the worst possible one. Yeah, and I find that because if you believe in this, once again, this stereotype of Kafka, I would, would, you would probably never think that he would write such a character. Uh, the mm -hmm. fact that he is like, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm rather going to have intercourse with this person instead of like, I'm just going to risk it. I'm just, you know, let's just, <laughs> let's just see what happens. Let's see what's behind door number three instead of like, given this, because Joseph Ka is like a pretty, like, 
not upper class necessarily, but he's somewhat privileged. He has like, you know, his uh, father-in-law, I believe, was it that gave him the lawyer? His um, his, uncle, his, his uncle, his uncle, his uncle, sorry. His uncle, uh, like, so once again, much like Kafka's own life, there, there's some like establishing um, privilege there. And I, I don't necessarily know how to navigate that, that he has this fear for the law whilst having a somewhat easy life. I think that confuses a lot of people, maybe. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of read Joseph as being, to, to use contemporary par, parlance, he's a bit of a fail son. <laughs> yes. He's, he's, yeah, had, yeah. he's had this easy life. He's been given many gifts, but he himself is on a downward trajectory. And, yeah. that, and that does create some tensions because the law represents a threat to the kind of uh, uh, social and economic stability he was gifted. And, and this mm. is just came to me, but he also reminds me of Ash Williams, Bruce Campbell's uh, character from the Evil Dead and Army of Darkness movies, because he's <laughs> sure he's 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 constantly trying to fight his way out of this like surreal hellscape. But his like own his commitment to his own ignorance is a stumbling block that he can't <laughs> help but throw in his own path at every opportunity. Yes. Yeah. I I no, think definitely. I think. Given you you've said this, Ash, we probably have to talk about the <laughs> we probably have to talk about the role and function of the law a little bit. Yes. So, so generally, there's this assumption that the law is about the law is not investigative, right? The law is not that which takes sides, but uh, the trial is about an investigation, which for quite a lot of people, depending on the system that they're most familiar with, this will feel like slightly strange. But I think the thing that's super interesting is the relationship here between the law and guilt. So mm. there can't mm. be there can't be a can't be a crime unless somebody is guilty of something. Which means we can reverse that causal relationship because if somebody is guilty of something, that means there must have been a crime. Right? Yeah. <laughs> It made me. It made me think of this. Um, there's a. There's a. There's another aphorism by Agamben, um, talking about this idea of like in the future that ch- children will play with the law as as we now play with toys, um, and this idea of like the law becoming less an instrument of kind of investigative domination and more like of of, of something that you can play with, seems like a really interesting way of responding to the kind of the same atmosphere that Kafka is writing about because you you completely right Leon it's got nothing to do with Stalinism and any argument and, and je- I mean quite seriously any argument that kind of tries to make that case ends up doing weird like semi-eugenicist stuff about you know the middle middle yeah. European character you know yeah. <laughs> well that, yeah. that oh if you go it precedes Stalinism but it's about Stalinism because that's what Europeans are just like yeah. you go oh okay yeah, because um, authoritarianism. Because yeah. I know what that means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so really, what it's about is about the kind of like ex- the existential angst, as Kierkegaard would say, uh, the angst, the 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 anxiety of the complicity of being alive, right? And, and this idea of like, actually, isn't that a horrifying thought? If we're forced to reckon with the fact that none of us have clean hands, like all of us are implicated in these systems of domination and exploitation. Um, you know, this is this is what makes me say that it's a kind of it's it's it is a horror story. It's existential horror. It's about like actually to to just be a subject, to be in the world, is to be constantly confronted with these forces that we can barely even recognize, never mind describe. I mean, everyone that Yosef talks to, 
is always like, oh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm not. Oh, or, 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 or they go, or I'm not allowed to tell you. Or, or, or they go, yeah, I'm just doing my job, buddy. What do you like? What do you want from me? I'm like, it's just, I've got kids to feed. And I'm like, ooh, this, this, this is the bit where it cuts pretty close <laughs> to the bone, right? By the way, your lips are weird. That's what they say in the end. Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's what this person is like. Yeah, you're going to be guilty because your lips are weird. Yeah, you, yeah, you, you just, yeah. <laughs> you look guilty. <laughs> It's like you know precisely that, and and uh, yeah, I don't know. I once again I don't begrudge people saying that because once again I think it's very beautifully layered. I think there is this initial social anxiety element of like, oh, I am not behaving as is required of me, and so forth and so on. And as soon you know, as someone who is undoubtedly somewhere on the spectrum, I find this good representation. Um, finally, some good <laughs> fucking food. Uh, and it's, but it, obviously, uh, I think I find, I find this very disappointing that a lot of people are like automatically drawing the line there somehow. Like, you know, it's, they go one step beyond the curtains are just blue. Like, okay, well, they are blue because blah, blah, blah. And then it stops. I'm like, well, why are they curtains there? So, to, so to speak, it's so forth and so on. <clears throat> but um, yeah, no, I, I, I think this precisely this multi-layered perception, I don't know, this this multi-layered uh, approach is like exactly how Kafka wrote everything. Like, yeah. I don't mm-hmm. think the man very shunned direct analogy and singular interpretations with like, you know, almost very fervent dedication, in my opinion. I mean, we're talking about existential horror and talk about being made subject. Like, in to, to draw the, the obvious comparison, right? In the metamorphosis, literally being subjected into a different form out of your control to, to exist, to try and survive, to try and be an insect in peace. That's a callback to the episode we did on the on the metamorphosis. Don't listen to it. It's old, but it's a goodie. And in this case, like being subjected by a, a, as obvious as it is oblique of an external force that is the law or the courts or the, the process, the trial in this case. And how do you behave? How do you react or how do you attempt to act in this case? Right. And I think what you were saying, John, that, you know, that they, they don't know, like they, they usually a character will say, it's like, Oh, you should do, should do this and that. And Joseph will say, Oh, but what, maybe I could do this. Or what if I do this? It's like, Sure, that sounds good enough. It's like, so, 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 does it fucking matter? Does it or doesn't it? I don't know. Nobody knows. <laughs> uh, uh, it's, it's a sense of literally being like, um, I don't know. You, you're in a void and there's no direction. Like, there's literally like, oh, you could go the, north or south. No, it's like there's no up, there's no down, there's no east or west. There's just a void and you're kind of stumbling. And is that a, a reasonable light? Or am I making enough light with these ideas? Or am I not? And never getting any clear signs. So, like, uh, if I was to go, like, the novel is about this. Like, it's often <laughs> read biographically. And I don't think that's helpful. I think that's very limited. Mm-hmm. But Yosef K is a type. Uh, you, you know, mm-hmm. professional... 30s, uh, someone who has suppressed their private life for kind of professional advancement. And um, the kind of Marxist terminology for that is alienation. 
Mm-hmm. Um, like, what what is this novel? If this novel is, you know, if we can boil it down into being like, it's it's about one specific thing. It's about the navigation of alienation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, <clears throat> and that alienation is felt professionally. Uh, you know, the deputy manager keeps taking over more and more of his job. He stops seeing all, all of his clients. Mm-hmm. It's felt interpersonally, sexually. It's felt spiritually. It's felt like, so there's this kind of like malaise this miasma of, 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 of alienated subjectivity that kind of floats through everything. And so you end up before the system, which is supposed to give kind of rationality, right? The law is the legato, the word, the thing that's kind of like there to bind a society together in order to, to make it make sense. And instead what you get is you actually just get a kind of intensification of alienation where you go, well, does, does any of this matter? And they go, well, I don't know, but you know, I only like the guards, I think are a really good example of this. They, you know, they go and arrest him. He gives his speech in front of the court and complains about them stealing his breakfast. And they're like, well, you know, I just, I've got a job to do and I, I want to get married. And, you know, do you know how much they pay us? And it's like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's alienated subjectivity all the way down. Hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. I find that the, uh, within that context, I find the scene where, uh, where Ka walks into um, the guards or the people that arrested him are uh, getting beaten. Yeah, the thrasher. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I don't know about necessarily what to do with it, other than it's supposed to communicate to me that like that Ka has has such a interesting relationship with the concept of law and this in this process because he <laughs> he's very um, like once again he's he's distraught that he is arrested and and this thing is going on, but occasionally also remarks upon. And they ate my food. They ate my breakfast. And then there is this opportunity. Once again, I cannot get over how fucking hilarious that is. But then there is this moment where he then is somewhat um, capable of like forming some kind of retribution because he, <laughs> because the Punisher says like they they eat people's breakfast as well. That one guy he's now for eating <laughs> breakfast of people. <laughs> like, I can't believe how much of a theme that is. But um, and then and then he's like. No, no, no. They're they're fine and whatever. And I'm not making an argument that the moral, the the right thing to do would be like, yeah, no, that fucker did eat my breakfast. But I do find it a very interesting characterization that Ka is like, no, no, they're 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 okay. You should let them go or whatever. Like this, usually within fiction, I think, in my opinion, the aimless character is always ridiculed. The it's always like this this. I think this is sadly, and I hate this. This is such a abhorrent victory of Ayn Rand that like the man needs to do something. Man needs to be objective and like needs to like uh, get a really nice pen or something. I don't know what that book is about. I don't care. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's Atlas Shrugged. I don't know. I, I never read it. But it's the um, only correct reading of Atlas Shrugged right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. you that, that's come to the left page for objectively correct readings of Ayn Rand. Precisely. No, but. <laughs> No, but it's it's. I do find this then such an interesting character, namely because it's mainly sympathetic. I would argue, even though he fucks up all the time. Yeah, and aimless characters are usually treated very roughly. I would I would argue. I I think I, I want to stay stay on that scene a, a little longer, and I'll I'll add a a fun caveat that uh, in the the Portuguese translation, uh, that scene uh, it's um it's the spanking, literally translates oh. the spanking. <laughs> Uh, which I found uh, surprising. Uh, it was hilarious. 
I've already found it a little bit sexually charged, the scene, but the spanking Definitely. is even like less ambiguous. Oh yeah. But I I, th- I feel like that's one of the few scenes where we can get like some sort of insight into Joseph's like proper character because like he's sympathetic to the to the guards that saw his breakfast, but that are being spanked or that are being thrashed. But but that entire scene flips once one of them screams. Because because that scene, it's not taking place in like a random warehouse. No, that's a vacant room in the bank where he works at, mm-hmm. which is terrifying on its own. Uh, and <laughs> working in the bank, yeah. <laughs> hey, and <laughs> and when he, when he screams, he's like, "Be quiet, be quiet!" And then he's like, "No, you, you do what you need to do. I'm leaving." Because then it, it starts to threaten like the only thing which he cares about, which is like his reputation, his job, his his career, his position. And because he screams, like, no, and the, the inner justifications for it, that's like, no, if he didn't scream, then maybe I could have done something. I was working towards it, but he screamed. So there's nothing I can do. And, uh, and then he kind of runs away. And uh, the next day, he, he passes by the empty room again. There, there they are again, st- or apparently still uh, being spanked. And then uh, Joseph goes to, like, some of the other... Um, employees or whatever and goes like we we need that vacant room cleaned and properly figured out it's a mess uh, blah, blah. but he he doesn't even engage this time he's like ah the horse and walks away <laughs> relatable yeah. yeah we've all been there yeah and i think i mean like i i <laughs> I, was, I was about to say i too enjoy the spanking room <laughs> 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 But no, no, I think I think there's a there's like a core thematic in a lot of Kafka's work. He's this metamorphosis too. There's like a psychogeographic instability that goes hand in hand with the kind of alienation we're watching, right? Because you know Joseph keeps encountering all of these spaces that he either used to know in one way or expects to know in a certain way, right? This disused room in the bank should not be a spanking room, right? <laughs> why why are these courthouses and legal offices always in random attics? In, have these seemingly secret portals to them and it, it reminds me a lot of like john smith's uh, short film the black tower right like mm. you've, you've got these like psychogeographically haunting spaces you know you might think you have a home but what you actually have is a lease and your landlord you might think that they own the home but actually the bank owns their home and they have a mortgage which is a fancy lease and the <laughs> bank doesn't even really own the home because the bank is this intractable cybernetic network of investments and venture capital decisions and microtransactions that are held together by the sheer will of whatever political oppressive force runs your government. And so we, we, then we have Joseph who keeps re-encountering these spaces as increasingly strange, increasingly unrelatable locations. And paradoxically, I think there's something really relatable to that. Yeah, no, definitely. And that the repeated perception when he revisits places, keeps mm-hmm. adding to the strangeness. When he has his the first hearing, he goes to where is this in like this suburban neighborhood of these poor communities, and he he goes in. It's like in the middle of this apartment building, and okay, he goes inside. And it's like oh, this weird arrangement. Everything's stuffy and and really tight, and a lot of people, and so strange. And then he comes back. Like the other week, uh, he wasn't summoned, but it's like, oh, there might be a hearing. I don't know. Let, let's see. 
Uh, and it's like he realizes, no, this this is not just the helium. This is actually a home, kinda. And these spaces keep getting revisited and reinterpreted in or reinterpreted into something else, something that's still always or, or pretty much always out of place. That's like, no, this this shouldn't be here. This is not appropriate to this. This shouldn't be this kind of thing. This this should be a home or this should be a house or this should be a a, a courtroom or this should be like a proper like a office post office something it should be this it should be that and shouldn't be the the things that are happening uh so i think you're you're precisely on point ash oh thank you i mean like also to like draw draw this out a little further right like joseph's increasing proximity to poverty is reflected by the uncertain location of like the center of the legal apparatus right yeah if you're poor your home is going to increasingly become a courtroom theater it's going to be visited more frequently by police for investigations. You you might have inspections from Child Protective Services. All kinds of horrors of the legal apparatus will start to infest your living quarters. And likewise, you'll be spending more of your time in courtrooms with your children because you probably can't afford childcare if you're in these situations, right? So now your home is becoming a court. Your court is becoming your home. The kind of like meaningful space between these two things increasingly dissolves over time. Yeah, I mean, what does the law exist to do? It exists to regulate and discipline the poor, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. That, and that's true on a kind of individual social level, and that's true on the level of, like, international law as well. And I will I will never forget that. I think this was several years ago. This might have been either early COVID. I think this was early COVID or pre-COVID. But uh, there was something that Jeff Bezos, I think, had his car parked in a construction zone for months. And it was he was accruing, like, $10,000 a day parking tickets for this violation and i'm i'm sure he never found out about that like i'm i'm, I'm sure that those parking tickets made it to some low-level legal assistant within his corporate complex and ten thousand dollars that's that's what he makes every like third of a second you know that that is an inconsequential that is a non amount of money yeah i mean like yeah. uh, just think of just think of something like uh, cash bail mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. this idea yeah. like if if you are if you are can you afford to not be in jail? That that's that's essentially what it rests on, right? Right. Uh, you have you've not been found guilty of a crime. Um, you you're on bail before your trial, and your bond might be set at like a quarter of a million. And even if you have a bondsman, how are you going to find the five or ten percent that you have to put up? Right, you can't. Yep. But if you're yep. if you're rich. Two hundred fifty thousand dollars. That's fine. Whatever. Doesn't matter. Goodbye. Goodbye. I'm gone now. Am I going to see that money again? Nope. But it doesn't matter. Like, and, and again. Oh, go on. No, no. Go, go, go on. I, I was, I was just going to say, and like the whole idea of like criminality and the legal system, right? Like, like we we treat the legal system as if it's this semi sentient set of rules, you know, that that exists with some kind of, you know, to to harken back to a previous conversation we were all having a Randian objectivity. When in actuality, it's it's mostly just social theater, right? Like, if you can't make your bail and you have to go to jail to await your trial, well, now who who goes to jail? Criminals. Who comes to to trial from jail? Criminals, right? Like the the jury of your peers will key into these social theatrics that are being played out. And some states in the United States are getting rid of cash bail. Illinois, shout out, good job. Oh. <laughs> I am going to pull on that thread because I think it's another important circumstance for us to talk about paintings 
and the, the <laughs> theater. <laughs> I'm having so much fun today. <laughs> Good. Uh, and uh, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> but especially the paintings of, because we, we meet this fantastic character, which is Titorelli as the as this painter for the courts. And he paints according to a very specific set of rules, according to how the judges prefer. And these paintings don't mean anything. These paintings may represent like, oh, the lowest kind of judge, but they but they show magnificent. They display power and poise and oh but it's it's nobody. <laughs> Right. And, and like, you know, you you would liken him to like like the courtroom sketch artists for the no camera trials. Right. But but his, his paintings aren't even they're not being archived for some kind of legalistic history. They're not being held in honor by the judges. He's like he's just hawking them to whatever sucker winds up in his office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I find that very interesting that at, at the end. That because once again. Ka is fuck is fucking up all over the place, but this this little like the conversation that he has with the painter and that he literally offloads all of his fucking paintings onto Ka like yeah, yeah. On, the, on this once again is it, hilarious to me, and I despite him messing up a little bit, I feel like <laughs> I I find it so funny because after having unloaded all these paintings, he literally goes to talking to a priest. Like it, it's such a detrimental <laughs> final step for him that afterwards, I believe he's like, "Yeah, I need to talk to like uh, someone of like a spiritual faith and so forth and so on." And I don't know, I I I, I don't necessarily know what to read into that, other than maybe it's like some final resignation of the character. Like, okay, yeah, I'll I'll take uh, like there's this acceptance because he has dismissed his own counsel. He has like fully. Uh, subjected himself to the law. And in confrontation of that, he has this very interesting conversation with the priest about like the parable of the law, as it's called, I believe. Like, and, and they have this, honestly, a very refreshing, open discussion about like, well, that's just an interpretation of, of the story. And like, they, they have, like, they do a little literary analysis together. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 It's, it's always nice when they include, they include the analysis within the main body of the text. Yeah. Isn't that nice? Yeah. It, just sa- it just saves us a job. Yeah. I mean, the, I think it's so funny that he doesn't like necessarily say like, okay, this is the right way to approach this parable. But it is like, like well, these are these readings based on these kind of people who believe in this, this and that. And I don't know. I don't know what, uh, do, does anyone want to uh, speculate maliciously about uh, the parable of the law. I don't know if that's because uh, I find it one of the more interesting parts of the book. I mean, Kafka um, was very religiously literate. We know we know this for a fact. Yeah. Read read very uh, like quite idiosyncratically, but very widely um, across Christian theology, across uh, Talmudic uh, writings. Conversed with people like uh, the Christian existentialist uh, Martin uh, Buber, uh, who wrote "I and Thou." Jewish mysticism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so again, I think like a way into this is about principally about ambiguity and about the kind of necessity of it. I think it's not a coincidence that uh, Rilke was a big fan of Kafka's short stories, um, <laughs> yeah. right? And Rilke is is very much about living the questions, right? The, this the imperative of of not looking for uh, closure in in a way that's actually like 
kind of, if we're going to put this in the context of literary theory, it's, it's kind of preempting a lot of like post-structuralism from, you know, post the second half of the, of the 20th century. This idea that actually there is always, there, there is always a text that's being written, even as you think the text is kind of closed. <laughs> yeah. I, I think like th that framing, thinking about it as in terms of questions, like there are so many questions in, pretty much any Kafka's works that are always left unanswered. And they're, the best part is they're not necessarily, they're not made to be answered. They're no. there. And yeah. we need to deal with them as perpetual questions. Fundamentally, yeah. it doesn't matter what, what the trial or the process was all about, or it doesn't matter what made the character turn into a giant bug. <laughs> what happens is like it did, and we do not know how but it happened and we need to handle with the effects, the circumstances and a question which we cannot answer. And I, I find that in a sense, refreshing and fascinating that we can't, we can't solve it, but uh, we, we perpetually insist upon it as, as we should in a sense uh, as uh, critics. Yeah. No, I, um, what we talked about on our, uh, on HBM on Ender episode, I think Kafka like is a, uh, perfect example of a writer that understands that when they write ambiguity is always in a room with them and it's it's very comforting because i once again i try to like solve the book as i is always my first in, intention <laughs> of like hey, i want to understand this or at least i want to generate my own meaningful meaning about it and so forth and so on the way that i try to do that is by looking at how he approaches punishments because this is very easy if, if it's about a law then how do we punish is a crucial crucial question um, one that you cannot dodge. And I'm so sorry to once again talk about the spanking room, as we're now going to call it. I only I have this sound that I'm going to have to play because I'm not going to get any other chance to play this. You know, it's kind of funny. As you get older, you start enjoying things that you hated as a kid. You know, like taking a nap or getting spanked. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and up to a way, I, I I don't I don't have a like a, a wholesale answer. But once again, if we have been making one point, is that we should reject that type of thinking when approaching Kafka. But I, I do think Kafka stumbled no, not stumbled. That's unfair. But uh, Kafka touched upon something very interesting on how punishment and law work together. And that is that up to a point, I would argue, very pretentiously, and I'm so sorry, um, but I would argue that the the guards kind of enjoy it in a in a non-standard perverse way, as in they are like they are very fervently partaking in like this structure that's that has a place for them. They are both like wanting to be the person that is now punishing them. And that's their justification for sitting through the punishment. Yes, they yell, but this is part of the theatrics and so forth and so on. And trying to embrace your place in this, in the process of society, is I would argue like what is is the most constant theme of this novel. Maybe I don't know. I don't know how you guys read it or felt feel about it. I before uh, letting everyone speak, I I want to pull a, a particular thread of what you were saying, Leon about punishment because uh, this book understands that punishment doesn't stem from a verdict punishment begins 
punishment begins at, at, at the start of the process, at the start yeah. of the trial, uh, in losing your breakfast, in having your life be consumed by this. I sold my linen. <laughs> <laughs> but I think one of... Uh, Going back to the painter, he he tells Joseph that there are uh, three ways to mm -hmm. to handle a trial like that, and one which is the complete uh, being completely absolved, and uh, that's that's a legend that does not happen. That's a myth. <laughs> that's a myth, and it right. there's nothing you can do about it. And there's we can talk about this, um, but uh, <laughs> j just to pull the thread, the other one is to effectively drag on the process and have it be like. In this perpetual middling state, and the third one is like, oh, you you get a, an apparent absolve absolving, uh, but then it, it kind of restarts and continues going, and it doesn't really get worse. But you need to to keep repeating the same thing over and over. And we see that, uh, or we see something similar when Joseph meets another colorful character in the 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 commerce man, the trader block, mm -hmm. who is in between or in the middle of his process or or is not or is at the start or is we don't we don't know doesn't make any sense doesn't matter uh but it's this constant process where like being involved in this being targeted being detained being processed being sued being a part of this is a tremendous punishment it is a torturous and painful circumstance that is start to finish terrible and it's not because oh you've been found guilty it's like no no the punishment is already happening and you know the the obvious sense is um if you're sued or you're having any sort of legal proceedings that you need to to be a part of that you need to handle they're they're, they're punishing and you don't need to win or you don't need to lose for them to be punishing as a circumstance as an ongoing thing it is Fucking terrible. Yeah. Yeah, it's not really about the verdict, is it? It's yeah. not not really about the verdict. Um, yeah. It, 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 does, it reminds me of sort of Bleak House, really, right? The, the legal case that it can never really be resolved because, again, just like the law itself, you're confronted with something that's so complex you can barely even begin to recognise it, never mind describe it. And, like, it, that that's what existence is, right? Especially at the moment, it seems like, you know, our existence is sort of seen as like a a burden and you kind of have to, there is just so many kind of minor annoyances that you have to sort of make your way through and like the rules of the system change so quickly and the the idea of like your your labor rights can be taken away from you, your healthcare uh, rights, your the social safety net you might have, your right to join a union, all these little things that exist to make kind of life a little more manageable it's not really about a verdict, is it? It's about it's about having those the the kind of grinding reality of having those those things kind of taken away from you. Yeah, I mean, like the verdict is delivered at birth, based on like class and race and gender and all of these things. Like you're, like like I don't know, not to make this overtly religious, but like you know, <laughs> like this is this is very much like you are born guilty under this kind of like capitalistic system, right? Like you bear that guilt from the moment of your birth. And like, I don't, I don't know, in, in much, much like a Catholic context, the only way to get rid of that guilt is to, to give this kind of church a ton of money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is definitely this, once again, the, the struggle with predestination that is generated through societal visions and so forth and so on. And for me, it reminds me a lot of like Kafka envisioning this, uh, it's, it's a very loaded term, but, 
quote unquote failing of society. And I don't really like that terminology per, uh, in particular, but it's he indicated like where how things could go wrong fa- uh, very fast and very badly. And, and today I really recognize that in uh, well a conflict that's going on right now, for example, like the amount of people who <laughs> at the time of recording, dear listener, but really even not at the time of recording at any time in the past, I don't know, 100 years at this point, um, there's, <laughs> there's a certain nation in the world that can do almost anything to any other nation, uh, to do a certain other nation in this world. And no matter how bad it is, people have already made up their verdict. And I, I, I do feel that Kafka very tenderly is touching upon this element of society about like this predestinational verdict indeed, like, you know, like religious uh, conceptions work sometimes. I'll, um, I'll let a, a brief quote. Uh, a couple of years back, I was at a special like five days long like event of conferences about uh, the, the movements of 1968. Amongst those, there were, there were a lot of different conversations about intellectuals that that, contri- that uh, directly or indirectly contributed to it. Figures, uh, no, 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 no. I'm confusing those. <laughs> uh, it was the one about 100 years of the Russian Revolution. And talking about different intellectual responses to it. And one of those what about, was of Kafka as well. And from, from what we, we understand and what we have, the, there isn't that much that Kafka said about it or about the Bolshevik movement. However, and I may butcher this quote a little because I'm pulling it from memory, uh, and it's been some time ago, it's been six years, but he wrote something along the lines of, I laud them or applaud them for for the the greatest effort against nationalism or something like that, like this this international affair, uh, effort or, or motivation that that guided them uh, was amongst the greatest possible virtues, something along those lines. And that fundamental anti-nationalist um, stance uh, was one of the most distinctive marks of it for him. And one of I, I find whenever I think and re- read about Kafka is one of the things that sticks with me the most, right? This sentiment that is aware of uh, how these powers, how these forces can be utilized. And I think it, it fits when we think about what, what kinds of punishment are we finding particularly given by, by the law. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the law is about vengeance, right? It's retributive. Yeah. That's what it exists to do. And you are, you are being punished for your crime, which, as Ash pointed out, is the crime of being born the wrong person. And you, the revenge is that we will make you into the wrong person, or we will make you a corpse. Like that's, <laughs> we'll make we'll make you into the right person, or we'll make you into a corpse. Right? That's that's the that's what the that's the function of the law, particularly in the experience of Yosef. Right? Um, yeah. So no, I think I think that's a super interesting quote to bring in at this point. Yeah, I one thing that I um uh, also wanted to, to to think about, like especially, and I think it's expression to what you were, were saying, Leon, about like these preformed judgments and on already like deciding who's proper and who's not. There's the um, something about the the and bringing back the psychogeography involved here. All these spaces that are unclean, that are stuffy that are inadequate at first, but that still they, they operate and they are 
essential to the functioning of the law or of these courts. Mm -hmm. And and I think that really goes against a sort of uh, <laughs> liberal vision that, you know, but it, it's got to be proper. It's got to be organized. It's got to be like civil. It, it, it's got to be this particular way for it to, to function, for it to work, for it to be right. And what we see in the trial is that it doesn't matter that the circumstance, it doesn't mean it's like, oh, but this seems inadequate. It doesn't seem proper for the law. And yeah. frankly, that is unimportant. That is the fact that it is um, unprofessional, that is clearly corrupt, that is wrong in, in so many senses. Like, this is the wrong place for this to be. This, is, this should be somewhere else. But that is, that's not important. What's important is that they are still just as ruthless and just as effective. Like, all oh, these smaller corruptions, oh, they take your breakfast, okay, they'll get their spanking, but uh, this doesn't gonna <laughs> change anything. It just needs to be the procedure. It needs to be the theatrics. The theatrics yes. that mm -hmm. incorporate these uh, other elements, that incorporate this wrongness into meaninglessness. Like, oh, all these things, all this. And, and you go, obviously, the, the inverse still works. Like, a proper, organized structure, a seemingly transparent effort of the courts or of the law is just as terrible and insignificant in the grand scheme of its effects, of its punishment, of its retribution is and vin vindictive value of it being the law. Well, like, it, it, this just makes me think of the conversation that Kay has with, with the um, chaplain, right? Uh, yeah. what, what, how can a person be guilty anyway? We're all human, every single one of us. That is correct, said the priest. But that's the way that guilty people talk. <laughs> 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 right? That's that's the, you know, there's this this idea that, like, to be human is to be guilty. Right? That's that, And and so the, the law is this completely insufficient system for, for reckoning with that essentially... Yeah essentially existential problem oh, absolutely and, in, and in, so, in so many ways the, the the trial is also i guess take, taking to task the kind of like tautological truisms that we kind of popular popularly encode the legal structure with like here in the here in the united states there's the there's the phrase uh oh if, you, oh, if you're not guilty you've got nothing to hide so you'll consent to that search yeah. <laughs> or whatever so you'll you'll consent to any kind of like legal investigation because there'll be nothing to hide when that's like even even presuming someone who has never broken any strictest interpretation of the letter of the law, like that's still an uncomfortable exploration of someone's internal subjectivity by like the icy steel of the legal apparatus, right? That still is there yeah. to render that subjectivity null, to render any kind of individual freedom null. Yeah. And once again, this is uh, this is where we see class come into play, namely the if you live in a gated community, the cops, first of all, don't go there. Like, you know, they mm -hmm. just don't show up there. Because why would they, right? Um, just just a tip. If you want to, like, get, like, your uh, drug bust quota up, you should go to those communities. But it's not here or there. But it's, uh, <laughs> I don't support those kind of activities, even for rich people, I suppose. But my point being that, like, you know, we want to answer... <laughs> It's really funny that under this capitalist like regime and what so forth and so on, it's that we have found, or we have approaching, we are approaching to find the answer to these existential threats and so forth and so on that we that, that that we mentioned just now. The problem is that's not to the best interest of the ruling class. 
So we're just not gonna do that. We're just gonna like keep on going as we're going. It's too bad. Like we looked at the numbers and we 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 rather not. It's it just you know maybe maybe another time. And that's the very lackluster response, and like this continuous engagement with this like um, pseudo ritual of the law. Like the law, like there is this conversation to be had, I suppose, about the law unto itself. But sadly, that that will fall flat because we now have this the law means as a tool for the ruling class to once again to reorganize and functionalize society. Mm-hmm. And I, I, once again, I think that Kafka very, uh, f- very sincerely approaches that more so than, sorry to say this again, but more so than Orwell or whatever, or you know, or Rance for, for, uh, for crying out loud. <laughs> I, th- I think there's something interesting about that in, in, in going back to the the parable of the law that the the okay you need access to the law, but there's a gatekeeper there. There yeah. is a, a, an mm-hmm. intermediary. There is uh, an impediment or a mediation to be had there. The as much as the, there may be a law uh, as a, a thing in itself, uh, there is a gatekeeper. There is a guardian of it that mm-hmm. seems to stop you from getting in. <laughs> Not just him. Uh, he is very strong and very big, but he's also the weakest of all the guards. And you already can't. And so it's very important that there's a gate that's open and uh, you can pass through it. All you have to do is, you know, beat him that's already stronger than you and do it then an X amount of times over. And it's very important that the gate is there so that all people can point, well, there's a gate there, right? Why don't they go through it? Like they have to do something. They just have to beat the guards. And I think Kafka is then challenging you to think, yeah, this is stupid. There's no reasonable person would expect the per- would expect the individual to pass through the gate ever, like and like you know, because the Kafka recognizes that this ritual once again is bullshit. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's that um, Adorno quote, isn't there? This the the idea that life life uh, uh, life cannot be lived rightly in a in a world that's wrong. You know, to par- to f- paraphrase very badly. But this idea that, like, actually, you can't solve the problems with the current system that you have is absolutely something that this this novel is so deeply, like, mm-hmm. racked with the the kind of like problem of of like how do you actually deal with this? And it's like, well, you we currently can't. But you know, the it's not a coincidence. I think that the Russian Revolution was brought up because that represented a moment where maybe that was possible. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it, it definitely like showed that a better world was possible, and people, you have pitch people mostly by far and large. Uh, there are some asterisks here, but sure, uh, by far and large, people can create that world, and everything that once again this ruling class is afraid of can happen any day, mm-hmm. in theory. Uh, maybe it's a bit too Luxembourgian of me. I'm so sorry, but that's besides that. It is, I don't know. I I think exactly what Kafka said. Like I applaud them for like realizing this triumph and so forth and so on and i don't know i uh <laughs> that's a hopeful thought I, to finish yeah. on yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i agree <laughs> very much so i don't know if there's anything else yeah my my next question any final remarks or any final points anyone else want to make 
How many paintings do you guys have of the <laughs> I, was, I was just about to say you can now find me selling paintings in the lobby <laughs> on the way out. Right. <laughs> That's the latest perk on the HV Patreon. <laughs> yeah. You get access to the painting shop. Hey, it worked for it worked for George Bush. <laughs> ah. I too will be will be uh uh with with some measure of psychopathy, painting my own crimes. So they're just paintings of like podcast microphones and like <laughs> listener numbers. Yeah. I mean, if we want a lighter example, it was for Ringo Starr. <laughs> oh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> Which um, some of the worst paintings I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> I mean, they were they were made in MS Paint, but anyway, that's a, that's a conversation for another day. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, no, I I think, God, it's, it's fucking bleak. Oh, the trial's <laughs> amazingly bleak, and it is hilarious and wonderful. And um, glad I could chat about it with you all. Yeah, it is certainly one of the most fiction books ever made. <laughs> the, yeah, the most fiction. Um, the, mo the most book ever made. The most book. Uh, yeah. No. I, I put it alongside Bloodborne as media that deals with the reality of being British. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it is the Bloodborne of early 20th century European writing. All right. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, Horror yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having us. It's always wonderful when we get to come on your show. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank, thank, thank you, for, uh, thank you for, for accepting being dragged out every, every October. And more. <laughs> we wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, and maybe you'll see us sometime on Horror Vanguard soon with something way more sillier. And yeah, it's it's my fault. A, a dark, another dark thing. A dark night. If you will. <laughs> a, uh, talking about justice, uh, being vengeance <laughs> and punishments. Tru not. Truly, a know. more we'll contemporary see. Kafka. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, the, the 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 broke thought is Kafka is Bloodborne, but the woke thought is Kafka is Batman, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, thank Fantastic. you so much, guys. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, thank, thank you, you thank for coming you. on. Uh, please, please check out the Horror Vanguard and all yes. their stuff. There's a lot of great spooky month content. It's one of the best months to be a horror Vanguard fan and supporter. So do check them out. Do support them both. They're wonderful. They do great stuff and great writing. So uh, yeah, ch check check John and Ash out, please, please. Yeah. I hope you guys like tomatoes. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>